In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through prophets many times in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the exact radiance of God's glory, and the exact rep representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Or to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, in the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So I've mentioned before this book, Dominion. It's a monster of a book in which the, this historian Tom Holland describes how so many of our basic assumptions in the modern world contrast with basic assumptions in the ancient world except for one. Many of, the, many of the changes in assumptions can be attributed to the influence of one particular culture. Surprising thing about this ancient culture is that its influence isn't due to having established an empire that didn't impose its basic assumptions by means of its military or economic dominance, at least not initially. I mean, it's not Babylon, it's not Greece, it's not Rome, it's Israel. One of those basic assumptions is about the law. In the ancient world, making law was the privilege of the powerful. To rule meant you laid down the rules. And the rules were to be followed by those who were powerless in order to serve the powerful. That was just the way it was. 
part of the basic assumptions of an ancient culture. Except Israel. Israel had this God. A God who spoke. As the writer of Hebrews points out, a God who spoke not through the decrees of kings, but through prophets. And when the prophets proclaimed the word of this God, it, not, it did not just apply to the powerless, but to the powerful. Kings were called to submit. And in fact, kings in particular are called to submit. According to the prophets, it was the failure of kings to keep covenant that caused the exile. Or at least that's one of the reasons it's the, uh, for the exile in Babylon. So, and you can see in that those assumptions, some of the assumptions that form our understanding of constitutional government. The idea that there are these principles and norms that stand over and above whomever might hold power. This is just a basic assumption now about what good governance looks like. Elected leaders pledge not to serve their self-interests or the interests, even in the interests of their constituents, but to serve, to obey the Constitution, the law. Now we might argue as to uh, what the con- me- Constitution means or how it applies, you know, and you know, particularly when you know the, the opposing party holds office. We are all constitutional scholars saying, oh, you know, they're violating the Constitution. It's worse than Watergate. You know, that kind of thing. But the fact is, even if we may disagree and even if we uh, fail in our attempts to implement, the fact is, the fact that we believe in that, the, the idea that we believe in the rule of law, didn't just spring out of nowhere. It has its roots in this out of the way, no count nation that served a God who spoke, who made covenants, issued laws, and held, held people accountable to them, the powerful in particular. Well, today we begin this relatively short series. It's going to take us to the season of Advent on the book of Hebrews. It's referred to as a letter, but it doesn't really read like one. There are none of the features that you expect to find in letters. You know, Paul always has these greetings and these, you know, all that business. It's more of a sermon, and the author of the sermon is unknown, so we'll just refer to the author as the preacher. And our preacher shares some of Holland's appreciation for this feature of Israel's tradition. The fact that they have come to know a God who speaks in, quote, many and various ways. But this sermon is not about the tradition itself. For the preacher, all that, the words spoken to the prophets, delivered in law and covenant, confirmed with signs and wonders, All that isn't the complete story. All that really is just prologue with this son. He had turned a page. We are in new territory. Uh, What exactly is that new territory? Well, to get at that, I thought I would talk about this book I read over my vacation. It was assigned. I have to give a presentation on it from my... uh, Clinical, or clinical pastoral experience course, part of my becoming ordained. And, you know, I'm kind of busy. I'm like, oh, man, when am I going to get a chance to practice this presentation? I got it. I'll just put it in my sermon. That way, two birds, one stone. No, I'm just kidding. But anyway, yeah, I am actually going to summarize what the book says. The book is called Stages of Faith. It's by James Fowler. 
he argues that there are these six stages of faith uh, that we that that are well that we go through over a lifetime. Some of us. Uh, we don't, you know, enter the world in stage one. We enter the world sort of in a pre-stage because faith is about making sense of the world, and when we come out, we're not even able to realize that we are separate from the world, right? We don't know where we uh, end and the world begins. So that's setting us up for this stage because what happens is we're nurtured, we're given language, and language gives us the ability to say, okay, this is me, that's not me. Uh, you know, this, this is me, this is pulpit. Uh, and then you can say, this, this is shirt, it's not me, but it's mine. You know, and so you start to learn your place in the world with words, so that's stage one. Stage two is you're able to take these words and tell stories. And you make sense by of the world by telling stories. The problem is you can't abstract meaning from the story. In other words, uh, it's hard for you to tell a story and have a point. Uh, you, may have, you may remember that, you know, you had some uh, five-year-old talking about their Minecraft game, and you're like, where are we going with this? Because <laughs> they don't know what details to leave out. Or they come in with soaking wet socks, and you're like, what's with the socks? And they start telling you about why they're their favorite socks and why they picked this one and not that one. And then by the time they go, okay, why are they soaking wet? You know, the, the, the water from the toilet is already flooding into the room. You're like, why didn't you lead with the toilet? That's what I needed to know. Oh, I don't know that. All right, so you, you start telling stories, but you don't know how to abstract meaning from it. Well, then you get to the next stage. Now you can abstract meaning from your stories. They have a point. But, so you can sort of understand the world a little better. It's around adolescence, it's his father. Uh, but the real question is, who am I? Right, that becomes a big question. And you look to communities other than yourself to help you understand who you are. They help define the world for you, make meaning for you. And, and in order to find, because you really need to be valued, you say, okay, help me. You know, so I remember when I was at Camp Talter, it was a camp for inner city kids. Um, this is back in the 90s, the Bloods and the Crips and all that stuff. Now, uh, Grand Rapids had gangster disciples and something else. But it was still the same thing with, red, you know, if you were one, you wore red, another you're blue, and it, or you had this pant leg rolled up, this pant leg rolled up, and these kids just sort of, it was perfect for junior high kids. It was a great recruiting tool because they were looking for an identity, a little place to belong, and you could, you could indicate, I belong here because I'm wearing my hat this way, turned this way, this color. Fowler says that some people, that many people, never really get beyond this stage. That you are a part of these communities, and these communities give you a place of security and help you interpret the world. But oftentimes, a crisis can move you beyond just that simple community. For example, your parent, you know, a couple that is in a real fundamentalist church, and they have kids, and one of those kids goes up and tells them, Oh, Dad, I'm gay. Now, if they're still allowed, if that community is still going to define reality for them, that is going to change their relationship with that kid. Either that, or they have to they have to draw some conclusions, saying, you know, that community, this attempt at making sense of the world, is no longer working for us. Uh, and so they find another community or a broader community that helps them understand 
what was going on in that community. You know, it might be, you know what, really this is about, it's about the, the shame they have about their own sexuality, so they gotta shame somebody else, or something like that, right? It's sort of like you pull back, the, you're the Wizard of Oz, or you're, at the, you're going to see the Wizard, and the curtain gets pulled back, and you're like, wait a second, whoa, 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 whoa. This is a bumbling old man pulling some levers. That realization brings you into stage four. And the problem with stage four, I mean, still stage four, you, you start to see, oh, all these communities, their efforts at finding meetings, you know, they're really, it's, 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 that's not the full picture. And so you can, stage four is this process of pulling back screens, like, aha. That's not a great place to be because even though you think you're above it all, it's sort of feel alienated, to make you cynical, depressed, disconnected. So then you move stage five, where you recognize, yeah, all these communities that are limited, but there's something, something beyond our grasp that I'm looking for and I need. And so you, you have this sort of higher consciousness, you know, that you, so you're not just uncritically accepting everything, but you know that, yes, there is, there, there's a gap between ultimate reality and my reality, but I can live with that mystery, right? So that's stage five. All right, stage six. Stage six. What Fowler, Fowler's description of stage six sounds a lot like what the prophet, or the, the preacher in our book is describing as what makes the sun unique. They are people for whom there is no gap. They embody ultimate reality. Truth, justice, goodness are not just values they aspire to, they manifest them in their lives. Now, the problem for Fowler, and when he's describing stage six, is to give us an example of somebody who does this. He uh, mentions uh, Gandhi. But then he says, well... Yeah, Gandhi could be cruel to his, his uh, wife and sons. So, so he says, okay, sometimes people in stage six can have blind spots. It doesn't really hold up. Like, if you've got a blind spot, then there are gaps, right? Uh, and, and I'm not saying it to suggest that Gandhi is no more admirable than the rest of us. Of course there are things to admire about Gandhi. The point is we simply got to be honest about ourselves. Even the best versions of ourselves, of our species, are deeply flawed. I mean, Martin Luther King, all his affairs, Mother Teresa, she's given all this money. What'd she do with it? She you know, didn't seem to help any of the people down in, uh, in India. She just sort of tossed it up the, the, the Catholic food chain. So, and that's not the, I mean, Mother Teresa's right there, Martin Luther King, he's up there. I mean, these are admirable people from the high, but they're flawed. They got blind spots. I mean, to, to, to suggest that what the writer of Hebrews uh, is describing as merely the next stage undercuts just how radically different this son is. You know, it's like saying, you know, after rolling, crawling, there's walking, there's running, there's jumping, and then there's flying. No, flying is not a next stage. 
That's a whole other level. I mean, there is this long tradition in which God speaks through prophets, signs, wonders. You know, God has been pointing us in the direction of ultimate truth. But only, there is only one who has fully embodied that ultimate truth. The only one where the divine voice becomes human flesh. Only one so, so embody that ultimate reality. It's like ultimate reality looking in the mirror. There's no gap. It's not just truthful, he's truth. It's not just, he doesn't just act justly, he is justice. He doesn't just do good things, he is goodness. Bright, shiny, glorious. The rest of us have gaps, blind spots. We hop around, he flew. However, the point of Jesus' mission is not to illustrate stage six. Yes, part of what Jesus does is to offer us a model which embodies the divine, how to embody the divine word. I mean, he is an example for us to follow. But if that's all Jesus was, it didn't really work out so great. Yes, as Tom Holland writes, and writes extensively, what he did accomplished, you know, shaped some of the assumptions of the modern world. But that aside, Fowler can't even come up with a good example to, to, for a stage six. At least not one that holds up to close scrutiny. I mean, if that is why, according to the preacher, in these last days, God has spoken to us by a son, then this son must be pacing and fretting about and, and wringing his hands, going, wait, 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 come on, can't anybody do this? Can't anybody pull us off? But that's not what the preacher says Jesus is doing. He doesn't say Jesus is up, fretting, pacing, wringing his hands. No. Preacher tells us. He says, he's sitting. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. What's that mean? What's significant about him sitting down? Well, he sits down because he did what he came to do. It's done. Had a seat. And what he came to do was to make purification for sin. Now, what that all entails, the preacher is going to develop over the course of this sermon. But for our purposes here, it's enough to say that the preacher is describing Jesus' mission as a priestly act. Jesus came not simply to show us a life that shines with divine glory, like it's looking in the mirror, but to take all the gunk, all the darkness, all the, the mess that leaves such gaps in us, leaves us with such blind spots. He's going to take that all upon himself and set it ablaze, burn it away, so that like him, we may be prepared, purified, to share in the glory with him. Therefore, says the preacher, we must pay greater attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. 
Our job is not to get preoccupied with what stage we're in or what somebody else is in. No, our job is to pay attention to what we have heard. To remember what's been done. Uh, I was listening to a podcast this week with my daughter about a woman who suffered from epilepsy and she had these violent seizures. But the doctors were able to determine what part of the brain was generating these seizures and they removed it and the seizures stopped. But it was the part of the brain that helps us determine the passage of time and gives us a sense of our location in space. Now this woman uh, became an ultra marathoner, running races that are 100 miles or more, you know, that would just run around the clock. She can't read maps because of the, the procedure. And so she would lose, lose the trail at times, and, you know, she, but she had these little tricks that would get her back. And, anyway, but, but the fact that she, the passage of time that she wouldn't lock, you know, have a sense of the passage of time, that has proven to be an asset. Because here's what she does. She knows the pace she listens for the pace that she should be running at. She knows, okay, this is the right pace. You know, here's, here's listening to her feet, pop, 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 pop. You know, patting along the road. She hits, okay, that's what I gotta do. And then her breathing, and she locks into that. She locks in to that rhythm, the rhythm of her feet, the rhythm of her breathing. She just hears that. And it turns out that a good part of the reason why we get tired is because we know how long we've been doing something. We're like, oh, I've been at this for a long time. I am tired. She has no idea because she doesn't understand the passage of time. So she just keeps going. She's so locked into that rhythm. Keeps going and going and going until she wins. Pay greater attention to what you've heard, says the preacher. Lock into that story. The story of the sun. Don't get caught up in what stage you were in or whether you should be better or, you know, or who might be better and who might be worse. That's not how you reach the finish line. That's how you wear yourself out. You reach the finish line focused on the one who sits. Who sits because he did what needed to be done to make you ready for glory. Breathe into that. Set your pace by that and you will not drift away. You will discover glory. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen.